I'd like to say good morning and greet you in Christ's name. It's good to be here worshiping with you. I'm glad to see the pews so well filled. I think that is an encouragement to see so many folks out here this morning. Appreciated that song that the youth sang, uh, the desire for God. The emphasis of our Sunday school lesson is a hunger and a desire for God. I want to talk about God this morning. The title to this morning's message is God is Working. It's another in the series, Great Doctrines of the Bible. And we're looking at the doctrine of God. God is Working. Back of the loaf is the snowy flower, and back of the flower, the mill. And back of the mill is the wheat, and the shower, and the sun, and the Father's will. This is from Maltby Babcock, 1851-1901. to Jesus An account from a couple of verses from John 9, speaking of Jesus, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. In past messages, we've been looking at who God is. We looked at His attributes and His character. But what does God do? What is His work? What is He accomplishing on an ongoing basis? I find that as we meet men especially, we, one of the first questions we ask of each other is, what do you do? What is it that you do? What is your work? God's work defines Him. We get to know God through what He is busy doing. We see some of His attributes in shoe leather. His great power, His sovereignty, His love for His creatures. And there are two basic extremes that we can take in our view of what God is doing today. The first one is that God is not involved. He is uninvolved. He is not here. He is basically absent. He created our world and then withdrew. He's like an absentee landlord who will return at some point to collect rent. Many of the deists of the previous centuries in this country were, had that teaching, basically, that God created the world and then He's no longer involved so much the George Washingtons and the Thomas Jeffersons. God created the clock and wound it up and left that He is not involved in the affairs of men in an, on an ongoing way, in an ongoing way. The second extreme is what is taught in many of our Reformed churches today, that God is sovereign and nothing happens outside of His working. That God, everything that happens is in fact God working. God is micromanaging every detail that occurs. We are the keys on a keyboard that He is stroking. 
that God is the divine chess player and we are his pawns. We are God's puppets and each one of our moves is orchestrated by a hidden hand. We have little choice in what God is doing in our lives. God predestined every person to a good or a bad end. The correct view of God's work is not either of these. God is involved and takes an intense interest in what is occurring here on earth. He is not absent. That's correct. He is here. He is working here today. But God has given man that He created the ability to make choices with the resulting ability to love Him or to take their own way, to rebel against the working of God. And along with the choices, God allows consequences that He did not want, that He does not like, but that He allows. And we make choices all the time. You're making choices here as you are listening to this message. I am also making choices as I speak. We are not puppets. God in His sovereignty could have made us that way, but chose otherwise. God's greatest work on earth involves the redemption of people to Himself. God's greatest work today is that, bringing people to salvation and bringing them through their experiences on earth into a good place in the end. That is His work. Man fell through disobedience and rebellion. God knew that would happen because He gave us the freedom to make choices. And He planned for our redemption way back before He created the universe. First, I want to look this morning then at at God's plan for us. Whenever we work, we hopefully have a plan. Work should be proceeded, proceeded by a plan. God's plan for mankind certainly did. I would invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read some verses there. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. It's a very intense uh, verses. There are very intense verses of Scripture here and can be problematic to understand from from an Arminian standpoint. It's a stronghold of Calvinistic teaching. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14. I'll read those now. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. That's as far as I'm going to read at this point. So the first point I'd like to make is that God chose us before the foundation of the world. God chose us before the foundation of the world. The scripture is very clear. Doesn't that make you feel special? It should. God chose you. He chose me before the foundation of the world. Verse 4 of our text, even as he chose us before in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. The term is elected. He elected us to salvation before the foundation of the world. We, and this is the important part, and this is where I differ from the Calvinist philosophy, is that we as a collective body of believers were elected. We were elected to salvation as a body of believers. Because in God's foreknowledge, He knew we would respond to His salvation offer. We are elected through His foreknowledge. Through the foreknowledge of God, we were elected to salvation. The second point is that God has elected those who believe. This is a conditional election. It is not unconditional. God has elected for salvation those who respond in faith. And God reached out to us. And it's not God's will that any should perish. He has chosen to limit His sovereignty and give to man the freedom of choice. This is the main point where I differ with with Calvinistic teaching of of election is that God is sovereign. He absolutely is sovereign. But He has, in His sovereignty, chosen to give us a free will. And that we are not forced into salvation. We are, in fact, do have that choice. And we can resist His grace. This, this teaching that I am sharing with you this morning is in direct conflict with what is known as high Calvinism. And I'm going to be talking about these concepts quite a bit in, in, in following messages when we look at the doctrine of salvation. But I want to mention it briefly this morning in the idea that God in His plan has, has elected us to salvation, but it is not unconditional election. It is a conditional election. It is based on our response and faith to Him. The Calvinist teaching, those who are staunch, if you want to put it this way, Calvinists, would use the term, the acronym uh, TULIP, to describe their belief structure. And uh, we'll just brush on it briefly this morning. The first, the T stands for total depravity of man. That man is totally depraved and unable to respond to God's offer on their own. The second one is unconditional election, which I'm mentioning this morning is, is the fact that it, is, it should in fact be a conditional election. It is conditioned on our response. The third one is limited atonement. They would believe that the, the, the sacrifice of Christ is in fact only for those who would believe. It is not for everyone. 
they would teach, and this is a very, very controversial, and I believe a very wrong teaching, is that the atonement is limited. It is not limited. The fourth one that they would teach is irresistible grace. And that is the fact that the grace that is extended to us as humans is in fact irresistible. If we are the elect, we will not be able to resist God's grace. Which means also that His grace is in a sense is not being extended to those who can, uh, who will not believe. And the final uh, tenet of the high Calvinist teaching is the preservation of the saints. Two of these points I basically agree with, the first one and the last. I believe that the saints will be preserved through the power of God. I do believe that man is depraved. But the center three there are, are to me, very wrong teachings. Uh, and we will look at those in subsequent messages as we look at the doctrine of salvation. Uh, I want to teach at some length about this. And I want to say something just at the outset here that uh, I love Calvinists. I am not anti-Calvinist in the sense that uh, I love them as, as people. I have family that are Calvinists uh, in their belief structure. And Calvinist, Calvinism as a whole is, is, um, is a teaching that I think they is, is well-meaning. Uh, I don't think there's an intent to, to lead people astray. But the, the high Calvinism, this five, point, five points of Calvinism, is, is, is wrong teaching. It's not, not correct, and I will strongly refute it. The third point I want to make here is that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Very strong teaching that we need to be clear with. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. It's, there is not a limited atonement. It is, in fact, an unlimited atonement. He, in His sovereignty, he, he does extend mercy to, to all, not only to some. He is not willing that any should perish. The fourth point I want to make here in God's plan for us is that God's plan includes the expression of His great love. And I, whoever divided up 1 Corinthians, uh, not 1 Corinthians, Ephesians 1, uh, put the verse marker for, chapter, for verse 5 in the wrong place. Uh, it should begin back at uh, verse at uh, at the phrase in love, and that is include, included in the statement. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And this is his attribute of love coming through. In love, he predestined us to, for adoption to himself. Predestination is also another scary word for us Arminians. Uh, I don't know if you all are Arminian. I, I am basically Arminian in my, in my belief structure. Not totally, but pretty much. Predestination is a little problemat problematic for us. We, we see that in, in the scripture and it, it kind of makes us a little afraid. But it, is not, it should not. Because predestination is in fact a, a scriptural teaching. We are those who are predestined because God knew that we would respond. We are marked beforehand because God knew. And the big deal here is that all who respond to God are predestined. 
for salvation. That's the big difference. It's not just certain people who will respond. We are all those. He is speaking to those who will respond. To all who will respond. God predestined for salvation those who He foreknew. And this is the will of God. Our salvation. A couple of scriptures. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. This is from 1 Timothy. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And from 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise to some, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Point number five, God's plan includes His sovereignty and man's personal responsibility. God's plan for us, for His people, for people in the, in the world, include those, both of those elements. God's sovereignty and man's personal responsibility. And those two, the meshing of those two can be somewhat problematic. And I possibly want to say we don't totally understand how those two mesh. But they do. They do mesh. And uh, Scripture is fairly clear uh, that those two do exist. And, And when confronted with these two diversions, many Calvinists will say it's like pillars going up through a cloud. You see two pillars going up there and they are both legitimate pillars, but we don't know where they meet up and above the cloud. And they will put it into a cloud of, of, uh, of uh, mystery, if you will. One of the examples of where these two come out is found in Acts chapter 2. And you don't need to turn to that, but it's Peter's preaching on Pentecost. Peter's preaching at Pentecost And he is sharing the powerful message that he had for the people there. And he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was delivered up for crucifixion by the foreknowledge and plan of God, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But he was killed by wicked men. There we see the sovereignty of God at work. The sovereignty of God was such that he planned, he knew beforehand before the creation of the world that in fact his son Jesus would be crucified. He needed to be for our salvation. But this does not alleviate the personal choices of the men who crucified Jesus. This doesn't doesn't, uh, alleviate Pilate of guilt and and the religious leaders of that day. They still had personal choices. And the big thing that I differ here with the Calvinists is that in fact, God did not force them to crucify Jesus. A staunch Calvinist would have to say that they were, they had no other choice but to go through with this. They made the choice, God allowed it. God allowed it. And that is a big difference. God allows things, terrible, wicked, evil things to happen in the world. The, the hurricane that's happening right, that happened recently in Puerto Rico. Did God say this must happen and He forced that hurricane to go? No, He did not. But He allowed it to happen. 
and disaster and evil has happened to a large part in our culture because of man's sin and their freedom of choice. God allows that. But it doesn't mean that, he, that you are forced to be evil. It doesn't. He has given us that freedom of choice. Number six, God's plan is based on his wisdom and knowledge. God's plan for humanity and God's plan for the earth is based on his wisdom and his knowledge. Romans 11 says, Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's plan is based on his wisdom and his foreknowledge. And finally, God's plan results in his glory. God's plan always results in his glory to bring glory to God. I agree with the prominent teachers of our day, the the John Pipers and the John MacArthur, that God's glory is very, very, very much there. It needs to be there. And God's glory is not only brought about when his sovereign plan is accomplished, but it is God will use the wickedness of men even for his glory. He doesn't cause them to be wicked, but he uses it even for them can be used for his glory. They did have the freedom of choice. God's plan results in his glory. And the verses that speak to that from Ephesians 1 there, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire a possession of it to the praise of His glory? So God's plan. God has a plan. God had a plan before the foundation of the world and we are part of that plan in His working. The second area I want to look at this morning is God's workplace. Where is God working? We know God is working. He is present He is active, and that should be a real comfort to us. But where is he working? And he's working in many, many areas. I want to mention a few this morning. First of all, he's working in the universe that he created. God is at work in the universe that he created. Somebody mentioned this morning the beauty of the morning. There's so many lovely things going on, and it is the universe that God has created. Since its opening in 1874, the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, England, has been the place where many extraordinary discoveries in physics have taken place. Its history of innovation is great. Cavendish professors have completely changed our understanding of the physical world. They discovered the first electron. The same was true of the neutron. The lab laid the foundations for the discovery of quantum mechanics in the 1920s. It was also instrumental in laying the groundwork that led to the determination of the double helix structure of the DNA molecule molecule by Francis Crick and James Watson in the 1950s. Of course, those are just some of the highlights of the discoveries of that great lab. What's interesting is that at the entrance to the old Cavendish lab, the words of Psalm 111 stand above the great oak door. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. On the doorway, or above the doorway of this laboratory over in England, there is that plaque from Psalm 111. The works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. The words are carved in Latin. The verse was put there at the instigation of the first Cavendish professor, James Clark Maxwell. 
that's not surprising because 140 years ago, the Bible and Christianity were held in high esteem in Britain. But what is surprising is that they are also over the entrance to the new lab that was opened in 1973. Andrew Briggs, a Ph. student at that time, was so impressed with the words above the old lab that he suggested that the words be put above the new entrance, only that this time they be inscribed in English. Cavendish Professor A.B. Pippert put the proposal to the policy committee. He was sure they would veto the suggestion, but to his surprise, they approved it. Open your Bibles to Psalm 111, where the quote came from for this plaque that is above that laboratory in England. And it speaks of the works of God. Psalm 111 speaks of the great works of God. Notice as I read this psalm, the number of times the word work is used, or the work of God. God's work in our universe, in our beautiful, beautiful universe. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. In the company of the upright in the congregation, great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his righteous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. God, he has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Psalm 111. God is working. From Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, speaking of Jesus, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The universe is the workplace of God, is held together by his power from the largest planet to the smallest microbe. He continues to hold it together. And we rejoice in viewing God's handiwork. We rejoice. And that's why you can almost worship, or you can worship, definitely, as you go out into God's beautiful universe. And, or maybe if you're an astronomer, or you like to look at the stars, or you like to go, get out into the nature, uh, you can worship God there very much by, by rejoicing in God's handiwork. I read an interesting little story about a farmer who photographed 5,000 snowflakes. That's kind of a tough job thing to do. And I'm reading from someone else's account here. When I picture God's rejoicing over his people with singing, I think of Snowflake Bentley. Wilson Snowflake Bentley, a New England farmer born in 1865, couldn't get enough of snowflakes. For 40 years, he ran around in the snow raucously joyful, catching snowflakes on chilled slides and photographing them, seeking to capture for others the beauty he saw in these one-of-a-kind masterpieces of frozen crystals. 
Over his lifetime, he photographed more than 5,000 individual snowflakes. His notes were effusive. Number 785 is so rarely beautiful. He wrote of the feast of their beauty. As I imagine snowflake careening in the snow, giddy with joy, I marvel with the psalmist, Lord, what are human beings that you care for them? Mere mortals that you think of them. They are like a breath. Their days are like a fleeting shadow. Snowflake Bentley was rejoicing and worshiping in God's creation. So God is at work in the universe. That's a given. Secondly, God is at work in our social structures today. God is at work in this room on, in our different social structures that are represented here. First of all, it's the family that's represented here. God is a, has placed us in families, and He has done this for a purpose. He is working in our families. That is one of His big workplaces is our families. When God is at work in our families to teach us things, uh, we learn obedience in our families as a child. We learn to love as a husband, particularly We learn to love. God is at work there. Learning to submit. Uh, Learning learning life skills in our families. God is working in our families. Secondly, He is working in our churches. God is working in our churches where we work together. Uh, For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. We all contribute our spiritual gifts for the benefit of the body. So God is working in this body. He is working on each one of you that are part of this body. Each one of you contribute through the gifts that you have been gifted with to the good of this body. And we are individually uh, part of that body, members one of another. And let's be faithful in using our gifts to benefit the body. God is working in government. God is at work in government. Yes, He is. Romans says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. God is at work in government. Finally, God is at work in the hearts of men. And I think this is God's probably greatest work, is His crown of His creation in the hearts of men. Reading from a very familiar passage in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God is at work in our hearts. His desire is that we would be saved, first of all, as the gospel is shared, that we would respond. And then he wants to work on us, to conform us to the image of his son, to make us more like Jesus. And then he wants to bring us safely to glory. Glorification. He begins with justification, then it's sanctification, and then glorification. It's his final part of his work in our hearts. I want to look next at God's tools. God has tools for working. 
And again, I'm going to list three. There would be many more, perhaps. The first one I want to mention is people. God uses people in His work. God uses people to perform His tasks. God uses people. And for the sake of time, I won't read from it, but most of you know the story of Cyrus. Cyrus was a heathen king. He was a king of Persia. And it's, the Bible tells us that God spoke into the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, and told him to let the people that were captive in his country go back to Jerusalem. And God used this, this heathen king to decree that his people could go back to Jerusalem and go back to the promised land. God can work through all kinds of people in our lives. He can work through President Trump. Yes, he can. And he is. Some of you are pretty disgusted with President Trump. But President Trump, God can, can take a person like this in government, and he does. Even the person who we may not look up to particularly, God looks at this person and he, he uses him for his purpose. And he, and he works through people. And his work is accomplished. He can raise up the people from wherever and put them in power and work through them for the benefit of his plan and his purpose. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. I want to look, read a few verses from there. God used the Apostle Paul, this, this blasphemer, this person who was persecuting the church. No problem for God. God reached in there, struck him down on the road to Damascus, and he used him. I want to read Acts 9. Verses 10 through 16. God uses people. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Does God need people to do his work? God could use anything, but God has chosen to use people to do His work. And I think I had to think just a little bit of uh, of uh, our medical people here in this church. It's Dan and it's John, and uh, I, I think a little bit of uh, surgeons. They, they probably don't do as much surgery as some, but an instrument, an instrument, is what this doctor or this surgeon reaches for. And it's an instrument that he uses to perform whatever work he is about to perform. Hopefully that will result in healing, right? He's going to bring, use that instrument to do his work. And the Bible tells us that we are God's instruments. We are God's instruments. People are God's instruments. People are God's tools to do his work. God is able to take someone like myself, who's not really a terribly good instrument, but he can clean me up, hopefully clean me up, and he can use me to do his work. 
What else does God use for tools? He uses circumstances. God uses circumstances to do His work. Circumstances that we can't see any sense in and we can't understand the circumstances that happen. God uses those for His glory. I think of the story of Esther. Queen in the Old Testament. And I will read a couple of verses from Esther 4. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. God uses circumstances. Esther could never have imagined as a child that she would find herself in this circumstance. But God used that circumstance and God used Esther for his glory. God uses his word. His word as a tool. Let let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. God uses the word. The Holy Spirit uses the word to impact people, cultures, churches, families, people. The Word is God's powerful tool. Application this morning to the message, working with God. We work with God. God is working. God is not absent. God is here. God is relevant. God is very much involved. But He wants us to be involved with Him in His work. He desires us to be involved with His work and He wants us to get on board with what He is accomplishing. That is why He redeemed us and He bought us out. We are His his workers. We work with Him. And there are some points that I'd like to make here quickly, briefly about some aspects of working with God. And you might just jot these down. I'm not going to have time to talk about them a lot or I don't have a lot on them. The first one is preparation. If you want to work with God, you need to be willing to be prepared to work with God. Um, In a great house, Paul writing to Timothy says, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. The first thing that needs to happen if we're going to work with God is allow cleansing to happen in our lives. Cleansing from those things that that are not useful. You know, if, if Dan were to reach for a scalpel and he was going and it had a whole bunch of uh, old junk on it, it's not terribly useful. He's going to have to cleanse. He's going to clean that thing up and he's going to boil it and do whatever they do to, to sterilize instruments. And we are like that. We need to be allow God to, to sterilize us, to, 
to make us useful in His program. So it takes preparation. And it's God that does it in us. It's not we that do it, but we make ourselves available for sterilization, if you will. We make ourselves available to be cleaned up. And we need to do that. The second part of working with God is submission. We need to submit to His working in us. Working with God involves submitting to His plan. I read a, a, a kind of an interesting little quote about a, a uh, the following prayer has been attributed to a Muslim convert to Christ. The prayer of a simple tailor. He said, Oh God, I am Mustafa the tailor and I work at the shop of Muhammad. All day long I sit and pull the needle and the thread through the cloth. Oh God, you are the needle and I am the thread. I am attached to you and I will follow you. When the thread tries to slip away from the needle, it becomes tangled and must be cut so that it can be put back in the right place. Oh God, help me to follow you wherever you lead me. For I am really only Mustafa the tailor and I work in the shop of Muhammad on the great square. Submission. Thirdly, stewardship. Working with God involves stewardship. We are God's stewards. We've been given many things from God and we are to be faithful stewards of that. And the biggest one I want to mention this morning, just one, is is opportunity. We have been given by God opportunities to work for Him. We have been given that opportunity and often I, I rebel against that opportunity. I don't take that opportunity the way I should. Those those. People who are going down to the jail this afternoon, they've got an opportunity. They've been given an opportunity by God and they're using it. And that they are stewards of the opportunities that God has given them and they're going to use it for God's glory. We are stewards. Fourthly, representation. We represent God in the world. We are His ambassadors. For the sake of time, I won't read that passage. I was going to read from 1 Corinthians 5, but it talks about us being ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors, that's a high office. And we, we, are, we are, have a high office for God. We are ambassadors for Him. We have a, a special connection to God that is so valuable to those around us. We are His ambassadors. And we work for Him and with Him. We are the face of God to those around us. We are His ambassadors. What do they see in us? Finally, willingness. We, we are working with God as we are willing. That's a big one. God works in those who are willing. God can use those who are willing, even when they don't have the most natural ability, perhaps, or don't feel like they're suited to a task. God can work with us. If we're willing. John Powell shares the following illustration. I have a, he says, I have a sign in the mirror of my room. I see it every morning in my groggy condition when I first wake up. This is what the sign says. What have you got going today, God? I'd like to be a part of it. Thanks for loving me. What have you got going, God? I'm willing. I'd like to be a part of it. Thanks for loving me.
I have to find my place in God's plans rather than make my own little plans and then ask God to support them. Come on, God, give me an A on this course. Come on, God, do this for me. Instead, I pray, what have you got going today, God? You love this world. You love this world into life. You created this world. We're all yours. What's my part in the drama? What part do you want me to play? I will play any part you say. Want me to be a success? I'll be a success for you. Want me to be a failure? I'll fail for you. Whatever you want. Willingness to be a part of God's plan, of God's work. What do I want to leave you with? God is, God is working. God is working. God is working in the universe. God is working in the affairs of men, the government. God isn't absent. God is here. God is working in this church. God is working in your family. God is, is a plan for your family. God has a plan for you as an individual. Are we going to be a part of God's plan? Are we going to allow Him to work in us? Are we going to be willing when God says, I need you to go out there and mow the grass in front of the church today? Yep. Thank you very much. I'll be there. I need you to help Norman paint the school basement. Are you going to be there? God has a plan. God has a work. Are we going to be part of that plan? God bless you.